Hello and welcome to Our World Podcast with your host, Ned Boy and Doc. Ned, how are you today, my friend? Everything's good. How are you doing today? I'm doing very good. I'm very good. Um, I'm ready to uh, get to some subjects here, my friend. Yes, yeah, Okay, we're going to talk first about the PBS special, the talk, Race in America. Did you see the program? Yeah, I thought I actually actually loved it. What did you think about it? I thought it was a I thought it was a great program. I had one major issue with the program. I'm trying to do the math to figure out exactly when this thing was shot, but I'm figuring it was shot in 2016 at some point in time. And to have South Carolina, the state of South Carolina, represented for such a long time with their police department. And it's almost like we're not supposed to remember. And I want to get this. I want to get this correct. I don't want to screw this up at all. Walter Scott, a black gentleman named Walter Scott, was shot and killed by Officer Michael Slager in April of 2015. This is the older gentleman who was shot in the back while he was running away. We've all seen that tape over and over again. I'm thinking this is one of the first cases that really kicked off this whole black life thing. And this officer was fired, but his trial was a mistrial. So he's not even been convicted of a crime, even though the nation seen him shoot a man in the back. And to use that particular police department, when they could have picked a police department that had a cleaner background in recent history, I didn't understand. No, I actually know one of the somebody that worked on this film, so I'm actually going to see if I can get contact with him to see when did they actually shoot this. Okay, because that's that was the one thing. I sat there and I said, for 20 minutes of this program, it's a two-hour program, 20 minutes is a good 10 to 20% of the program to dedicate to the South Carolina Police Department that has some questionable killings of of, of unarmed citizens within the last few years to use them. I mean, you could have used the police department, uh, who knows, in Montana that might not have had a shooting as opposed to one that had such a big ticket shooting. I mean, this was this was a viral, this was, as a matter of fact, I know this was one of the first viral um, police shootings caught on film in recent history. Yeah, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, that's because it was caught, actually caught on film, so I'm thinking it was take, taken right after. I want to say, because I remember things happening before, so I'm thinking it was right after the Mike Brown incident. Okay, but you know what? This this man, Walter Scott, was never even mentioned in this documentary. During yeah, no. the whole time that they were talking to South Carolina police, we had to see police in the academy. And another thing that I took from the talk, before I make it personal, I thought that uh I don't think that it's uh necessarily true that white families, Caucasian families do not have the talk also. Now the talk might be totally different than the talk we would have in a black or Latino household. But who says that they don't have a some kind of guideline talk? See, I, I'm not privy to that so I really don't know. All right, well, I know I have asked some people that I worked with, and they said that they've never had to talk before in their lives. They didn't even know that, that it was a thing. Okay. Uh, well, you know what? 
you know, I'm going to privilege this by saying, next a black man from Harlem, New York. I'm a black man from Bedside, Brooklyn, New York. And if, if we didn't have the talk by a parent, you better damn sure know that the talk came through a friend, a neighbor. It came in some way, shape, form, or fashion. Or you did the worst thing. You learned on your own. You learned on, yeah. And I think, I really think that's the case because how many white people do you think sit down and have a talk? Because nine out of ten, when they get pulled over, I've seen cases where they like, they, they act, I've seen cases where they may act up and nothing might not happen to them. Might not even get hit with a ticket. Oh, oh yeah. I'm, I'm not saying that there's any, um, fairness. That there's, uh, you know, we come from someplace, uh, and this, you can almost not talk about anything to do with the police department of anybody in our age group and not mention Rudy Giuliani. Because Rudy Giuliani changed the whole atmosphere of how policing was done in New York City. Him, uh, Bernard Carrick, and, uh, who was the Bratton? William Bratton? I mean. Well, Bratton, Bratton left. And then I think after Brian left, things got a little crazy with, um, forgot the police commissioner, Ray Kelly. Right. See, but Bratton put in place something called the broken windows philosophy. Yeah. Do you know what that is? Yeah. He actually, um, remember he was our new commissioner when de Blasio got, um, elected mayor. So he implemented that again. He did the broken windows again. It was a failed system. Yeah, they implemented um, the broken windows, but it wasn't the stop and frisk part of it. They were just uh, dealing with low-level crime. Okay, so broken windows, for those, those of you who have no clue what that is, here's the theory. The theory is, it's, say, a, a building's abandoned, and there's one broken window. One broken window makes other people go by and break out other windows, and then from there... You have people go in, they start squatting, they start, eventually they'll burn the building down. So you gotta stop them from breaking the very first window. And that was to such a point. Now I don't know, Matt, if it bothered you this much. There was a time in the early 90s, I was getting stopped three times a week. Literally three times a week. And I'm not talking a hot backwards, pants sagging, beer in my hand guy. I'm talking about a young, clean-cut, Wall Street gentleman with a shirt, a white, a white shirt, a tie. I love my little fedoras and my um, my damn, uh, you know, uh, shoes. So I was well-dressed and still getting stopped three times on Iris per week in the early 90s. Yeah, I agree. I mean, was it early 90s? I know Giuliani was in office. He came in office from 93, and he didn't leave to 2001. Yeah, so it was definitely Giuliani was in office during that time when it got to the point I got stopped so much. I had stopped wearing um, winter coats because I felt like every time I had my winter coat on, I would get stopped and searched, and that was, that was fucking annoying as hell. Yeah, if you don't understand... A person coming home from work, and every time you get out the same train station, at least a few times a week, you're going to get stopped and searched. It's something that I feel like no one has to deal with. It kind of make you, I don't want to say hate, but it kind of make you 
don't like the cops because they're not, you feel like they're bothering you at this point in time, so you're not doing anything. Now, me personally, I grew up in a time before your time. Uh, in that side at that time, you rarely ever seen the cop on your block. There was no such thing as a cop really on your block. If you lived like in the, uh, you didn't live on the main avenue or near like the shopping center, you would see one. I mean, and we're talking about cops still carrying wooden nightstick cops. No automatic weapons. He had a big, ugly ass 38 hanging out of 11, <laughs> 11 holsters. And, and you know, the old stereotype of the cop swinging a stick? That was the cop. So you didn't have anything to do with him. You left him alone, and he more than likely left you alone. You knew that he was going to be a bully if you bothered him, and you, you were just going to lose, so you left it alone. Now, as I became a teenager, I guess we was rambunctious on the block. See, I don't know how it goes in Harlem, but that side, guys, we all have a store. We have a corner store. That corner store is like our clubhouse, winter, summer, spring, and fall. But the people in the neighborhood know who hoodlums are, who the working kids are. We were the working kids, but we had a meet-up place. But every day, and I'm not joking, because anybody who knows me could call me on this. We were getting the cops called on us to the point where they were starting to arrest guys for, like, anything. Like, if you talk back, you have one word to say back, like, no, I'm not. Cuff them. I mean, they were calling 1013, which is officer in distress on us, Four times a week. Yeah, you're not allowed to say anything if if the cops come up to you. I remember once I had an incident. I was double parked in front of my art building waiting for someone waiting for someone to come out the parking spot in front of me. So the cop car comes and she's like, uh, "You need to move your car." So I'm like, "Cool, I'm waiting for this parking spot." She said, "You need to move it now." So I get back in the car, I I go, I make a U-turn, and I go in the block now. The lady is out the park this spot. Well, she's almost out the park spot, so I pull up behind her. Cop comes back around to me again. Then I just tell you to move this car down. Stay here. And then um, she came back to the car. Oh, she asked me for my license and registration. I had just changed my jacket, and I left my wallet in my coat pocket. So I, I, told, I explained this to her. I just changed my coat. I left my wallet, must be in my coat pocket, but I know my state ID. I know my driver's license number. So I gave her that, um, my driver's license number, and everything went downhill from there. Oh, how do you remember that number? You must be always getting in trouble. No one knows that number. She called me like every name in the book to the point where I just couldn't take it anymore. I think she called me stupid, and I was like, I think you're stupid, and then everything went downhill from there. Now, I will say this. There's also a false narrative that's stated in the talk. When you are approached by a police, I don't care if you're your cop, if you're your car, you're walking, wherever it may be, sir and ma'am is not going to be some kind of magic uh, abracadabra that's going to diffuse a situation, and I can prove that. Go to work tomorrow. Say you don't get along with one of your supervisors or a boss, and they come at you, and you use the word sir or ma'am to them, and see if that diffuses the situation or everything stays exactly the same. It will stay the same. So you don't have to lose your pride. Now, I will do this. 
I'm glad I don't have to have this talk. And, I, you know, when I get pulled over, and I've been pulled over, it is a nerve-wracking experience, even if I have my wife sitting next to me, because we've seen that doesn't help you. Yeah, it doesn't help. They got that on video with the Fernando. That's right. It does not help you. Now, I would, I would clearly state that, okay, naturally, I'm going to follow the rule. I want my hands seen at all times. I'm going to do my best to follow the instructions. And then if I have to reach for anything, especially if I have to reach behind me for my wallet or something, I'm going to verbalize that. See, now that I'm going to verbalize. Other than that, I'm not talking. The first thing that you have to remember is your rights. You have the right to remain silent. I don't know why people think that you... You diffuse situations by actually always talking. You could remain silent. I feel like they bait you into talking. But don't, you know what? Don't be the fish. Fuck them. Be the, I'm not saying be the bigger person. Be the smarter person. You know, this, this humbling yourself and calling, say you're a 45 year old man. It's punk ass 22 year old. You gotta stir him as though, you know, he's your lord and master. No. Officer, he has a name. If he has a name and you can see the name, you say, Officer, blah, blah, blah. You let him know that he's dealing with a man or a woman. You know what I mean? You don't have to back down, but you don't have to You don't have to say anything more than that's required. If I give you my license and registration, I don't have to say anything else to you. I don't have to tell you where I'm going. I don't have to tell you where I'm coming from. That's none of your fucking business. And now when you start with the where you're going and where you're coming from, blah, 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 you're opening yourself up to anything. Let's not forget that rule one is anything that can be, will be used against you. Yes. And it's always they, been that way. Actually, if they actually read your rights, I don't have many cops. Ah, I've never got my rights read. The, the time I did get arrested, I, I think they read me my rights. When at one time I was already in the, in the cell. Well, you know what? I've unfortunately, I've had the uh, unfortunate feeling of having those cuffs placed on me for less than anything. I'm, I've actually walked. I was one time, me and a buddy of mine, and no, yes, we were uh, intoxicated. We were at, uh, we were at uh, a train station in uh, East New York. And so we we getting ready to get on the J train, and I go up to the token booth, and so I'm, me and the token booth, uh, you know, the guy's taking the uh, the money uh, behind the counter, yeah. token booth clerk. Me and him get into it, and this man said something about my mother. My mother had recently passed, so I lost it. Now I'm not even thinking. There's a precinct attacked right in this train station inside the train station but my gasket is blown so cop comes out and he doesn't ask us to move he kind of gives me a shoulder block and I'm like you know what I'm not going anywhere what what are we going to do about the situation I said what are we going to do at this point I'm beyond ration I don't have any ration so long story short I just handcuffed to a radiator for like five hours, as he called it, calming and drying me out. 
it was no harm, no foul, because I didn't even get a ticket to a pitch. I didn't even have to pay a fine. I didn't have to do anything. No, no points on my life, nothing. It was just a bad experience. But I was not walking out of there with this man. And he was going to do this in front of It was like 200 people on the rush hour. He just showed the block. And I was like, no, it's not happening, my friend. Now, naturally, oh, are you trying to go for my gun? I was like, nobody's. Nobody's actually touched you, officer, but you're not going to show the block me out of the damn um, train station. It's not going to happen. Yeah, that's, see, that's the thing I don't like. Cause that, that'll be the excuse that they always try to use. Oh, he tried to reach for my gun. Um, was there a case in the talk with, was it the talk that had the woman in the car in California and then the cop won't let her go, so she backed her car out? Yes. Of the alleyway, and the cop said that he she dragged her and tried to reach for a gun or something like that. And 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 thankfully she had the camera was put in the wrong place, but it happened to be the right place for her life. Isn't yeah, it funny how things like that work out? Yeah. He yeah, like, oh, they even said that about the Walter Scott thing. Oh, he 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 tried to grab my gun as he was running in the opposite direction. That makes sense. I had my first everything. Guy, and you know that's a, a term for the younger generation. He was my first day or my day one everything. First time I ever drank a beer, he was there. First time I ever took a puff off weed, he was there. First time I ever played hooky, he was there. He was my very first friend I've ever had in my entire life. He was killed by the police, 81st precinct, Brooklyn, New York. I never forget that phone call. Four o'clock in the morning. His mother calls me. I had just left him the night before. Everything was fine. He got into an altercation on a on a on a city bus with the police. They put him in a chokehold, and he passed away. Now I'm not saying that he was an angel. I grew up in a neighborhood with a lot of people who were not angels. A lot. But there are crimes that fit uh, getting a death sentence. And, and and never being disrespectful is one of them. Yeah, I agree. I mean, even what they did with the the whole Eric Gardner case, they placed him in the so-called heat, yelling, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And you put your knees on this man's head and basically until he passes out or well, dies. I don't, I, what I don't understand is where is the, because I've never been in that position, where is the talk that they get with Humanity is tossed out of the window. Humanity. How do you say what I'm doing right now? I'm, I can justify what I'm doing because I know I have a prosecutor, I have a mayor, I have a police chief who will back me, and I can look at myself in the mirror and say that I punched a 70-year-old black woman in the face because it's justified, even though all she did was ask me why. You know, I don't mean, like to be. They don't like to be challenged. They don't want you to ask any questions. Whatever they say, they want you to just do. No questions asked. Yeah, you know what's uh, it's just we we everything, but everything, all of this fits. The talk fits into because race in America, it fits into thirteen because everything starts back previous to thirteen. Nothing yeah, wait, before we get it, before we go into the 13, let me just say, uh, de Blasio, did you know that, I'm pretty sure you know that de Blasio has a black wife. And he has a black, very black, black son with a big, huge-ass asshole, right? 
Yeah, so when he first got elected, we was having this whole stop and frisk talk, and he mentioned, yes, I had to have this conversation with my son. Just off of those words, the police basically, like, turned their back on him. They, like, hated de Blasio because uh, he was sticking up for the lesser person. But he, he was telling the truth. I have a black son who's about six feet tall. I had to have this conversation with to teach him how to act when a police officer, if he's ever stopped by a police officer. If a, if a man could just say that and have a police force in the uh, Pat Lynch, which is, I think, the um, – the PBA, the president of the PBA or something like that, come out and try to demean him because he said he hasn't had this talk with his son. There's a disconnect between, I don't want to say there's a disconnect between black and white, but I think some people, if you're put on that blue uniform, you have a disconnect with reality then. Yes, it's a, I, I've come to a conclusion, and I might be 100% wrong because I'm no psychologist or psychiatrist, but it seems like the police, the police nationwide is made up of kids who were once horribly bullied, picked on, and abused. And this is their chance to get back at everybody. I mean, these are not kids who got by it. They still holding a grudge from seven and eight years old, 12 years old, and when they was in high school. I agree. There's a way that they can fix it. And I think the way is to have more community interaction. But when someone wants to become a cop, now I I applied for the police exam. I took the test. I took the psych exam. During the psych exam, they're more worried about your reaction to anger than there's no race related questions. They don't ask, hey, have you ever been around a white person before? Have you, have you ever been around a black person before? There's nothing involved in that. So if you're a racist and you don't have a criminal background, you can become a cop because they're not asking you those questions related to race. I got, I had a problem with becoming a cop because they told me I had too many interactions with with police officers. Now my only interactions came in the form of three disorderly conduct tickets that was all dismissed in court. So if that's a, if that's me being having interactions with the cops as being, um, well, bad interactions with cops, and they always dismiss in court, shouldn't it have to be on your character then? Because the cop, if they stop you for anything, they can always give you a disorderly conduct. Well, you? you know what? That's almost a ninety-nine point nine percent add-on. You know, that's like just an add-on to anything else they're going to charge you with. Disorderly conduct or resistance is automatic. That's an automatic. Yeah, I think that's just in, in, insane to give someone a disorderly conduct for asking a question. That's how we, 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 you know, like I said, that's how everything, no matter what you do, the talk or anything else, Black Lives Matter, it all refers back to the first one which would be 13. 13 is, if, 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 a, if a body had a brain, the brain would be 13 and everything else would be the other parts. Because, or let's say slavery would be the brain and the heart would be 13 because we're living in 13. 
You know what I mean? We are living. Yeah. We are the offspring of that slave who is now living in the world that was created by 13. Now, you know, just to, to go, and I'm going to do this real fast because I don't want to bore anybody with this, but this is how it goes. 1619, slavery begins. Virginia. American Civil War, 1861 to 1865. Reconstruction, 1865. Basically, you might as well say into 1965 Civil Rights Act. So that meant every black person previous to 1965 lived under Jim Crow law one way or another. If you didn't experience it personally, your auntie, your uncle, your grandmother, your country cousin, somebody was underneath it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, that's why when people be like, well, how do you, uh, why y'all always bring up slavery or um, the world is better today? Nine out of ten, I'm 35. That means my mom went through Jim Crow. And your grandparents, for sure, for sure. Your there's uncles, no, all of them. There's no, there's no separation. So you can't say, oh, you guys are uh, always bringing up slavery or or everything is racist. These people who was around during the Jim Crow laws that's not black, they, they, some of these other people that's making the laws, um, the, 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 they're forming the criminal justice system. So you, you can't say, oh, well, you gotta, you have to be, you have to play the hand that's dealt. Sometimes the hand that you're dealt is against you. Yes. Yeah, it's, let's think about this. 1965, we're just going to use 1965 as a date. It's only 52 years ago. Do you know that's only two generations of black people, if you were born in 65 or 64, who were what you call free in this country. Anything previous to that was state freedom. You can't vote. You can't drink where you want. You can't date, a, you can't date who you want. Um, you can't go where you want. You can't work for the federal government. I mean, think you about that. You sit on the bus. Exactly. 65. So only two And they wonder why this generation is pretty wild. They're the first totally free generation we've ever had in this country. Yep. This millennial, he's the only one who's literally, he is, he almost, and she almost has a disconnect with the struggle. Because they've been free their whole life. See, I'm old enough to have seen the shit fall down the tree in the 70s. I remember it clear as day. I remember the, the dope scenes everywhere. Winos everywhere. Dilapidated cities, burnt out buildings. Man, I used to go to East New York or Brownsville. There's a street. You could actually Google it if you like. It's called um, Amboy Street. Look up Amboy Street in the 1970s. One fucking, could you imagine this? A city block, three city blocks, one building standing, and that building's abandoned. Yeah. I'm this this thing would stick out like, I mean, I remember we went over there the first time as kids. Unfortunately, our, our home burned down when I was in, uh, I think I was in sixth grade. Our, our house caught on fire, and I mean, this shit burned to the ground. Oh, wow. Uh. 
Yeah, yeah, that was the fucked up story. A fireman came, I had a cat. Hey, kid, your cat's dead. <laughs> no, oh, forgot that. As long as, hey, kid, your cat's dead. <laughs> that was fucked yeah. up. Brutus was the best. I love Brutus. I still love Brutus. But to get back to this, so this one building sticking out like the Taj Mahal in the middle of all this shit. And this is, this is normal. This is where, you know, like three blocks away from where my auntie lives. You know, this is this is the sight that they have to see every day. You know, we uh, when when white people think that they live the same lifestyle, even if they're poor as a black person or a Hispanic person, they are fooling themselves in a manner that's criminal. It's really criminal. If someone that if they believe that, if they really in their head believe that. You can ask them, would they trade places with you right now? No. If they're both, let's say uh, your wealth and their wealth was the same, your health and their health was the same, everything on the board was the same except for the color of your skin. Would they trade lives uh, with you? Not to pretend the answer is going to be no. Them fucking people that's under dictatorships with, uh, like Saddam Hussein, if you told them tomorrow you could be free, but you had to be black, they'd be like, fuck you. <laughs> I'm telling you. No, you know what? I'd rather just take my chances with Allah than to be fucking black, man. Because for some reason, we're vilified and hated worldwide. I mean, almost worldwide. And I, I, I believe in, in the 13th, they started with that movie. What was the beast of uh, shit? Birth of a nation, and okay. and how they how they planted it was that they they made us look like we were like criminals, rapists, had these animal animalistic um um type of uh, taste, and they project that to the world. So if you if you're not around black people or a black person, you're you're only gonna see you're gonna believe what you either see. Or what you hear, and at that time, this is what you're hearing, and this is what you're seeing because this is what they're painting. So if you're a criminal at that time, they might broadcast that one person, and everyone's going to think that, oh, all black people must be like that guy. I'm going to tell you a story. I'm not trying to be funny. It might turn out funny, but it's sad and funny at the same time. I went to Utah. I went to school in Utah. I had two roommates. And I am going to just call them Billy and Bob because these were the two countryest fuckers you ever want to see. You know, Farmer John's, white T-shirt, <laughs> and the boots, yeah. rolled up uh, Farmer John's. Yeah. So after about a week or two, I kept noticing every time that I took a shower, these two motherfuckers would be around in the vicinity. I mean, somewhere in the vicinity, they would be around, either when I was coming out of the shower or going into the shower. Now, I didn't get a gay vibe from them because I, I was like, no, this, that's not it. So one of them finally breaks down. You know, I guess now we know each other. We've been in the same room two, three weeks. And he goes straight out to me with a fucking straight face. He said, is it all right if I see your tail? What? Is it all right if oh, you see my tail? <laughs> this fucking guy legitimately believed the stereotype that I... Black people have a tail. Oh, my God. He didn't know any better. 
I was the first black person he had ever came in contact with his entire life and close. I mean, he had seen his nephews, other black people on campus, but I was the only one that would actually sit down and talk because I was stuck in a room. Now, naturally, the end of that night, I requested to get the fuck out of that room. And, you know, I let them know, you know, y'all, y'all, y'all about the two dumbest motherfuckers that I've ever met in my entire life. <laughs> because it does not exist. But they, I mean, straight, straight, straight face. Can I see your tail? I mean, you know, you can't, you could take 9,000 years to, to break down what has happened in the last 400 plus years to black people in this country. So you get a, you know, Black History Month, and you know, Ness, you like to do honor to somebody in black history. And so I'm going to pick, because it kind of fits into the 13 and everything that's going on, the Black Wall Street. Back in 1921, this was considered the most thriving, wealthiest black community in all of America. And what did America do to this neighborhood? They burnt the whole fucking place down. 35 blocks. 35 blocks. 10,000 people made homeless. Killed over 300 people. It was all due to racial tension, jealousy, because they had their own liquor stores, movie theaters, their own doctors, their own lawyers. They were self-sufficient. This was supposed to be a blueprint that they wanted to send out to other communities to show you could do it somewhere, too. Now, everything... Everything's not about race, but so much in this country is about race. I mean, it's just even little subtle shit. Now, one thing that I really, really, really enjoyed about 13 was when Edelman, who ran, who was uh, like the public relations guy for Nixon. There's Nixon Nevada, yeah. Yeah. When he broke it down, and I don't, this is not to be uh, salacious, but I have to say it how he said it. He said, back in the 50s, we could say, nigga, 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 straight out. Then, 60s, we couldn't say it three times. We could only say, yo, niggas, you know? And he said, now, we say social programs, urban communities. So, for some, you know, to break, for them to break it down to technology, because it's, it's, it's very subtle what goes on. Like, I love The Walking Dead. I love the show. But I've noticed that they do everything that they possibly can to feminize, asexualize, or demoralize every black male character. The black female, she can kick ass. And she goes through hell because she's been raped forever. But women, women go through a whole other thing than we go through. But yeah. I, I will not ignore the fact that they've been brutalized by the COs, and the police departments, just like we have. So I don't want to go through this whole program and not say the sisters haven't went through everything that we go through, especially since the stereotype is they give nothing but attitude to everybody. You know what I mean? Exactly. There's another quote that they mentioned from a Nixon advisor. Um, his name was John John Nickman? In Nickman? Errolman. Oh. He was like, it was, I know you were in the Nixon campaign, and he was like, there's two enemies that they had, the, anti, the anti-war left and black people. And he also said, we, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana 
and blacks with heroin, and then decriminalizing both heavily, they knew that they could, they could disrupt those neighborhoods. And yeah. I'm like, so if this is coming from the president of the United States, of course it's going to trickle down to the to the public. But let's, you know what? We can focus on Nixon, Carter, any of them, Reagan, any of them you want. But let's not forget, this shit goes all the way back to 1619. There's never been a black-friendly president. Now, you could, I, it really pisses me off a lot. Uh, there's been so much evidence of the shit that Clinton did to the urban communities. But for some reason, because he was a little cool, he put on shades and he played a saxophone with uh, Arsenio Hall, he gets the cool pass. No. Them fucking mandatory minimums and that urban uh, funding, that urban militia called the police department the way he did, that shit is criminal. And I'm glad as an old, old man that he suffers because of it. Yeah. He suffers because he knows that, you know, that one day when he's got an answer for his life, he screwed over a lot of people unjustly. Yeah, how do you give the, uh, 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 rock, a uh, crack cocaine, get more years than a, than powder cocaine and the, the cocaine in its truest form? Drugs, that, drugs, man. Yeah, That's exactly. the way I look at it. But, well, as they said in the documentary, cocaine was more sophisticated. And it was a white crime, so they they was getting slapped on the wrist. But if you had uh, crack cocaine, thirty years. And you know, it, that, no, go ahead. That's no, I was just saying. That's the same. They showed the woman who's been in prison. Her only cr crime was uh, crack cocaine, and she had life in prison. See, but we we a lot of that stuff is you get. Uh, the politicians, they're indoctrinated also. Charles Wrangell's old ass, let's not forget, he sat there and had to admit that he backed every one of those laws that Clinton put down. And he won. And now he regrets it because it was his community. I mean, I, I remember Harlem in the 80s and 90s. It took a beating. Brooklyn took a beating. The five barrels got their ass thoroughly kicked. Crack cocaine was a storm. I mean, did it hit Staten Island though? Oh, come on, man. All Staten Island ain't money. There's a lot of shit Staten Island. You know, you got, when you get off that uh, ferry, uh, I think it's uh, St. George or whatever the hell that area is, that's not the most, what we call, splitless neighborhood. That is I've been to Staten Island one time in my life, so. Oh, well, I lived on Staten Island. I mean, it's not bad. The funny thing about Staten Island, you have pockets of Staten Island that are very mixed. But you have other pockets of Staten Island where your black ass not, better not be. Yeah, because at that time, what I would think was our crack epidemic, they were being ran by the mob. Right, so they had their sections where it didn't go to. I mean, and let's not forget, white people were cracked out too, but they wasn't broadcast. This yeah. wasn't... Uh, a black-only drug. Drugs are drugs. Drug addicts love drugs. White yeah. drug addicts, Hispanic drug addicts, Asian drug addicts, they fucking love drugs. That's what they do. That's what they love. You know, 
it's, it's just a, it's a weird world we live in. It's going to continue. And the thing that's scary, and I have to say that I agreed with the young brother when he said it. Like I said, there was slavery, Reconstruction, Jim Crow. What the fuck is next? What's the new next technology? Because it's oh, just, yeah. I mean, it's always oh. something next. Well, they did show that the, the prison now all of a sudden, they they want to make the money off of the GPS, uh, uh, off being on parole and bail, getting bailed out. So they now... They make the money off this, this GPS system and... So there's always going to be some type of quote-unquote corporations behind these uh, new legislations that come into effect. Right. See, now we got to watch out for the new legislations that's going to affect gun ownership because I think that's the next – that's the attack that they've been acting like that they've been wanting to do that I thought I heard Obama scream way too much during his eight years. And now I'm surprised Trump because he's backed so much by the NRA, he can't really – just come out and do it, but he has to have a subtle way of doing it. When you de-arm the people, you can do whatever you want to the people. And see, that's the strength of America. Strength of America is that the American people have always been the most armed people in the entire world. You have more armed people in America than some country's military. You know, it's like 300 million, not illegal, legal guns. Owned by citizens, three hundred million. Damn, you can go to war forever with that many guns. You know, so and and I've I've seen some things firsthand. I lived in Georgia for a while, and when I lived in Georgia, I got caught in a march, a Klan march in a place called Cummins, Georgia, on. The gentleman's name is Juan Williams. I think he just died three, four years ago. He was a civil rights activist, you know, during the King time. So he's a big deal down in Georgia, you know, King, Georgia, him, Georgia. And this was a, I don't know if you ever heard this term, get home before dark town. Yeah. I was caught in a get home before dark town. I had to literally, night, this is 1991, be taken out of town by state troopers. I got a free ride out of town because I got caught up in Cummins. I didn't know this section of town. I was a salesman. I'm going about making my money. Nobody told me they're going to have this rally. I get caught in a, you better... If you can't, if you can't run, you better learn to run. I'm like, where am I gonna go? I'm not even driving. And sure enough, I be caught in this march, and I had to be taken out of town by state troopers. You know, where did they take you? Oh, they took me back. I was staying in Decatur County, DeKalb County. Oh, okay. Oh, I got caught in Cummings. Me and another dude, we went over there. We figured, okay. This is a community we haven't hit. We can hit this community. And, you know, when you knock on the door and you get that look, I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's a pure de-hate look. Because I did this once, and now this is going to be funny. I did this in Indiana. I was in Indianapolis. I was actually staying in a place, and it's a real place, Kokomo, Indiana. 
So I found out that there was a grand dragon living somewhere nearby. So every week I would go around and I would ask about this fucking grand dragon. Now I'm going to be a bold asshole and ask about a grand dragon. So eventually they get me an audience with this grand dragon and he actually brought $700 worth of encyclopedias from me. Mm-hmm. And he told me, don't ever look, act, or add anything about me again. Now, I did have to get insulted because there's nothing I really could do. And he's like, I love to see young nigga working. Because <laughs> now you're not going to be robbing my mother or, you know, raping my sister. I was like, oh, this is some real bullshit here. But, I mean, if you want, if you want a bad place on the map, go to Indiana. Indiana's a, is awful. And that's not like a place that you would think so much of. You know, everybody would say Alabama, you know, Mississippi, but Indiana is at the top of the food chain because that's like the home of the Klan. And you remember how you just talked about the Klan earlier with the uh, birth of the nation? Yeah. They were so fucking acceptable in this country. They had a march on Washington. Could you imagine a racist group having a march on Washington past the Capitol building, and we're not talking like we see it today with just, like, six sad fucking racists screaming the N-word. No, we're talking 60,000 strong. When you got that kind of group, a hate group that big and strong, you know they will power. This country just turns a blind eye to it. Oh, it's perfectly fine because you come to find out later on, senators, congressmen, people that work on the Hill, they were members. That's what I didn't understand. Like, the, the Ku Klux Klan was, like, accepted, but, like, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Black, Black Panthers, uh, Angela Davis, Fred Hampton, these are all criminals to them. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the Black like Panthers. Public Enemy Number 1 book, the Ku Klux Klan was, like, acceptable. Listen, David Duke, who was like the re- the rebirth the rebirther of the Klan in modern times? I don't think he's ever been on Public Enemy anything, FBI's most wanted anything list. I mean, you would think a leader of a a, a Nazi party or a Klan party or you know Sons of Anarchy or some shit like that, they would. I mean, goddamn, the leader of the Hell's Angels makes the the wanted list. That's, that's what I, I, I have no understanding of that at all. The first person was playing was like, oh, they could do whatever they want. There was no problem. But any other group, that, no. that group is dangerous. You can't voice your concern. You can't uh, rally people together or you're a criminal. Well, you already see that uh, Black Lives Matter, some of that top leadership, and you really, because they can't, they can't ever even build... They better never even have a storefront building, or that shit will get bombed or burned out. I think that's why the Black Lives Matter movement's been successful, is because there's no clear-cut person that's running the entire thing. Right, because they will be targeted, killed, or we never hear from them again. Yeah, so I, I think that's that's why. I mean, they they even said... Uh, King and Malcolm may have had, well, King had the FBI, said Malcolm may have had the cops 
around in his organization. So it's like you can't you can't do anything without some type of surveillance being on us. <clears throat> Even when 9-11 happened, <clears throat> and then they had, um, who was it? I think it was Giuliani put in place. They, they had undercover cops uh, as Muslims in these mosques. So I think once you, I think people play off fear. Once the fear is there, once you insert fear, it allows you to do anything you want because it's going to be acceptable. Listen, the day that your mother held you in her arms that first time and she looked at you neck and, you know, she got teary-eyed and, you know, and that love poured from her into you and back, that's as pure as it's ever going to get being a black male in this country because the day that you were born, it's like you added more, like you said, you added more fear, you added more anger to the planet. Not by you doing anything yourself, it's just people have not taken the time to actually talk. They tell us what we need. They tell us what we want. They never ask us what we need. They never sit down and talk to us and figure out, I love that white people explain our plight to us instead of asking us what our story is. You know, outsider can't tell us what it's like. Nobody could tell you what it's like to not only have to maneuver the, not, the minefields of the bullshit that goes on in your neighborhood, because that's hard enough, man, and that's a story for another time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because maneuvering the dogs, the real killers, the scammers, the rip-off kids, in your own neighborhood, and then now you compound that with you're the enemy, even though you're the guy going to school, you're the good father, you're the guy who who works nine to five and then another job if you must. You know, you love and respect your parents. You're a good kid all the way around the board. That's not enough. I mean, you know, it's like, what is enough? Because I think what people don't understand is not only do you have to try to survive the system, you also have to try to survive to get out of your neighborhood. Yes. And the question is, what the hell? This looks like you're trying to ask your big brother, and the country is your big brother. What? When do I hit a point where I've done enough for you? You know, being in the military, that shit doesn't matter. Graduating from college, going to get a master's degree, that shit don't matter. Being married to the same person for 20-something years, having no criminal record, it doesn't matter. It's like on sight. On sight. I mean, because we all been there. Think about it. When you go on a job interview and you notice that you're the only black person interviewing and there's three other white guys waiting in, in the, in the uh, main office, to see if they go, like, they going for the same, you, we all go, God damn, man. <laughs> Am I going to get the call, like, no thank you? You know, do my qualifications automatically just go out the window because of the color of my skin? And there are some people who don't understand that you, this is the way, how you have to think sometimes because it's, it's reality. 
I don't think this is. I think we would be a much better society if people could understand or try to understand what minorities in this country go through. But I think race is such a race is a topic that makes people uncomfortable. So some people don't want to discuss it. It's like when they say at work, don't discuss politics, religion, and abortion. Hmm. I think those race is a topic that makes people so uncomfortable that they don't want to. They don't want to put it in their face. I, I was saying something the other day. I actually posted on my Facebook. And I think it kind of fits this. When you don't acknowledge a problem, when you keep your head in the sand about any issue, I don't care if it's a big issue or a small issue, that means that you have grown to the point where you can tolerate it. And that's what America is. America has learned to tolerate the amount of sheer racism that goes on. So it's no need to change. You don't change anything you could tolerate. Think about it. If, if I could come and meet you every day, Matt, at 4.45, and I, when I see you, I kick you directly in the ass. That's all I do. I kick you in the ass, and I, and I walk up the block. And then 4.45 tomorrow, I'm going to come and kick you in the ass again. So I do this every day for, say, 20 years. You tolerate me kicking you directly in the ass every day and walking away. Mm-hmm. Now, if you couldn't tolerate it, you would put a stop to me. And on their side, there's toleration because people who ignore their neighbors, we're their neighbors. When you ignore your neighbor being brutalized or being treated unjust, you can tolerate that. You don't want nothing to do with helping. They're fine with that. Because you don't want to get kicked in your ass the next day. Right. So you become fine because you know what? The government is scaring motherfuckers. Let's not forget, we've had a lot of help in this country. And a lot of the people who helped us along the way, especially during the civil rights, they got their ass kicked too. They didn't get a free pass. Oh, you want to oh, help? Yeah, they definitely got uh, their ass kicked or some got killed. Yeah, yeah. You know what? Now all of a sudden your business is not doing business. The contract, nobody wants to come to you anymore. They don't wanna they don't wanna go to your business, they don't wanna do this. You're non grata. So, you know, is there hope for the next generation? I, you know what? It's sad, but the biggest hope for America's next generation or generation after that is something sick and it, it, take it as I say it, the blending of the family in America. Which is fucked up. It's kind of hard to hate your granddaughter, father, if you love the granddaughter just because he's black. Right, yeah. And that's the only thing that's loosening up some of the tension with some of the people is the fact that they, their daughter or their son is now in interracial relationships. Because up until that point, they always hated. And if they didn't hate, they just liked for no reason because they didn't even know. You can't get to be 50 and say, I've never really sat down and talked to a white person. Or well, I never talked but to a black person. I think we mentioned it before in one of our other shows, but it's been said that it, it start with, everything starts with education. But New York City is like a melting pot for all cultures. But New York City is one of the most segregated cities when it comes to schools. So you could go your entire school 
you, you go from kindergarten to 12th grade without being in the classroom with someone that's white. A black person can go through the, through the whole 12 years without being in the same class with someone that's white and vice versa. Yeah, you want to know so, something? Yeah. I think you can live like that, too. I think you can yeah, live. You have to, uh, then you can work. No, no, I'm saying you could also live in a community that's kind oh, yeah, of yeah, yeah. just like that also. Oh, definitely, definitely. There was a time in Harlem, there was no white people in Harlem. I lived in Bed-Stuy. When you see the white guy, and you want to know something that's funny? Black guys get robbed all day. The white guy never got robbed because they always thought he was up to something. Yeah. He had to be the police. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, so how can things get better if you've never been around the person of a different race until you maybe you get to college? Now, when you get to college, you're 17, 18 years old, you you may already have some preconceived notions of this person, even though you never met them before. Yeah, yeah, stuff, you know, 17, 18, you're not going to have your final say, but you got a lot of that stuff planted as a seed deep in your belly of who you are. I mean, you watch any of these programs, man, you see some of this vile shit that kids are spewing, it's, it's outrageous, man. I mean, in, in the last eight years, especially the last four years of Obama, the explosion of nastiness, and I've said this before, and I've said this definitely on other shows, I I hate, and I don't know why I do it, I hate going to the comment section. See, you read the article. Oh, yeah, that's the worst. When you go to that comment section, and I don't give a damn if it's such a... It could be an article about... Kermit the Frog is a better character than, what's the red one that the kids love at Christmas? Elmo, Elmo. Okay. I like Kermit more than Elmo. And you go to the bottom, and oh my God, this is about two Sesame Street types. I'm just using that as an example. And the racist comments at the bottom, because nobody has to really sign what they say. You could just have a letter next to you. Man, I read some of those Huntington posts and my head be exploded. I'd be like, I want to respond. I'd be like, nah, nah, nah. You can't do it. I kind of stop because it, it, some of the comments actually make you make me angry. And I'm like, I'm fucking angry over reading a fucking comment from an article that I read. It's to a, from a person that I don't even know who the hell it is. Why am I getting angry at this? No, there was a time where I responded and... Yeah, I'm done. I mean, and the other person responded. I mean, it was like back and forth. I was like, this is, this is getting ridiculous. I've done it. I've done you it. You can't times. argue with some stupidity. No, no, no. Hate, hate for no, for no apparent reason other than the fact, because you want to ask the question, why? I don't even know you. I've obviously never done anything in your life, you're going to eat the same food you're going to eat. You're going to drive the same car, live in the same place. If I say something to you or not, so why do I bother you so much? Why do I bother you? Why do I bother all you at all? All over the color of the skin. That's, that's, in, that's insane to me. Yeah, and, and you know who bothers me the most? A person who says that we're post-racial. Post-racial, oh, yeah. Yeah. You say, you're saying a lot when you say that. That's like saying we're post-homophobia. We're post-xenophobia. Uh, yeah, that's like people say, oh, racism doesn't exist anymore because we elected a black president. Oh, yeah, and because there's four of you in the office now. Yeah. You know? 
No. It's 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 insane. man, it's been it's been a good talk. Uh, I appreciate all your input, my brother. You got anything to say to the people before we wrap this one up? Um, as always, everyone, Netboy Docs, we're on all forms of social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and most importantly is our YouTube channel. You can find us at Netboy Doc. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, comment, share. Um, if, even if you don't like the show, tell us why you don't like the show. Um, we, we respond to all comments, um, positive or negative. Once again, that's on our face, um, sorry. Our YouTube channel is the most important. Please subscribe to us at Netboy Doc, but you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Netboy Doc. And then on those platforms, we will let you know what topics we're going to discuss. Um, you can get involved in the topics. You can shoot us some topics that you would like that for us to discuss. Um, just, just join the community. It's at Netboy Doc on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Okay, and I would love to hear from you. Uh, so this is Doc, and on behalf of Doc and Netboy, I'm going to tell you, as I always tell you, peace.